I guess before we publish uh, the, the next clip, which was from Exhibit 43 at 202540, um, you made a notation here on the demonstrative exhibit regarding Mr. Floyd's movement and, uh, and his speech. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So from um, approximately 4 minutes and 45 seconds, after the prone restraint had begun for the next 53 seconds, Mr. Floyd is silent. He's not saying anything, but he's still uh, moving slightly. Would this have been readily apparent to a reasonable officer in the defendant's, at the defendant's vantage point at that particular moment? Uh, absolutely. If we could publish uh, the next clip. Minnesota on trial for the murder of George Floyd may have a break for now and they should be back later we'll check on them later and post something if we have it 
Thank you for listening. For example, or um, may not be breathing. Um, so whether uh, the reasonable officer is really paying close attention to Mr. Floyd or whether the reasonable officer is really paying closer attention to the crowd, the point is the same. The evidence is suggesting that there is medical distress here. Of course, you also look at the individual's behavior. So in this case, you can uh, not only hear Mr. Floyd saying that he can't breathe, but you hear the change in his voice, as we discussed. You uh, hear him stop talking. You see him stop moving. And the reasonable officer here uh, would have been aware that at one point he no longer had a pulse. All of those individually are indicators of medical distress. And as you look at them comprehensively in order, it's signs of increasing medical distress. Then, uh, Professor, I'd like to go to the last uh, stage of your four-part analysis, and that is to determine whether officers' actions are appropriate, proportional, and reasonable. Uh, and I'd like you to now please share the with the jury what conclusions that you have uh, reached regarding the use of force by the defendant on Mr. Floyd. So I'm going to ask you first, you have an opinion to a degree, a reasonable degree of professional certainty as to whether the type of force used by the defendant on George Floyd on May 25, 2020 constituted deadly force? I do, yes. And what is that opinion? Uh, that it did. The use of force had the foreseeable effect and a substantial likelihood of resulting in death or great bodily harm. Do you have an opinion to a reasonable degree of professional certainty as to whether the type of force used by the defendant on George Floyd on May 25, 2020 was reasonable as viewed by a reasonable police officer on the scene? I do have such an opinion, yes. What is that opinion? Both the knee across Mr. Floyd's neck and the prone restraint were unreasonable, excessive, and contrary to generally accepted police practices. When, in your opinion, did the unreasonable force begin? When Mr. Floyd was initially put into the prone restraint position and when the defendant's knee uh, was placed onto his neck. And when did it end? When the defendant's knee was lifted off of Mr. Floyd and he was taken out of the prone restraint position. Do you have an opinion to a degree of reasonable professional certainty as to whether defendant's use of force whereby he restrained Mr. Floyd in that prone position for 9 minutes and 29 seconds on May 25, 2020 was reasonable as viewed by a reasonable police officer on the scene? Yes. And what is that opinion? No reasonable officer would have believed that that was an appropriate, acceptable, or reasonable use of force. And was the force, uh, did the force, uh, was the force unreasonable as it started and as it ended? From the time it was initiated and throughout its duration, yes. And finally, do you have a degree, I'm sorry, an opinion to a degree of reasonable professional certainty as to whether the defendant appropriately uh, rendered medical aid to Mr. George Floyd on May 25, 2020 in accordance with generally accepted police practices? I do, yes. And what is that opinion? The failure to render aid to Mr. Floyd, both by taking him out of the prone position and by rendering aid as his increasing medical distress became obvious, was unreasonable and contrary to generally accepted police practices. Thank you very much, Professor Stoughton. I have no further questions, Your Honor. Mr. Nelson. Just a moment, Your Honor. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Uh, Mr. Stoughton. Stoughton, correct? Stoughton, yes. Okay. Nobody gets it right, so I won't take it personally. All right. So, Mr. Stoughton, uh, you testified that you've been a, you were a police officer for approximately five years before going into uh, the more academic uh, nature of your work. Uh, I was full-time with the police department for a little less than five years and stayed on as a reservist for another six months um, and was
as an investigator before ultimately going to law school and taking an academic route, yes. Okay. And you uh, analyze this case principally from an academic standpoint, correct? I would not describe it as academic. No, I would describe it as the professional standards for policing. Okay. And the Graham versus Connor standard that you've discussed, I mean, there's more to it than just those three factors. Agreed? The Graham v. Connor standard is the the Fourth Amendment standard, yes. There's um, more to Graham v. Connor, and there's more to the professional standard than just Graham v. Connor. And that would include um, that the analysis of an officer's use of force is viewed from the totality of the circumstances, correct? As viewed through the lens of a reasonable officer, yes. So it's not just 14 10-second clips. It's the totality of the circumstances viewed through that lens. Agreed? Yes. And, in fact, one of the standards that Graham versus Connor, or Connor establishes is that um, shouldn't be viewed from the 2020 lens of hindsight, right? The 2020 lens of hindsight is an admonition to not rely on evidence that was not available to officers at the time. It's part of the reasonable officer on the scene standard. It, of course, doesn't mean that we can't evaluate an officer's use of force after the fact. Understood. But the information, what we look at, is the information that was available to the officer on scene at the time based on the reasonable officer standard, right? Um, not exactly. It's the information that was available to a reasonable officer at the time, not a subjective, the information that the individual officer had. Understood. So we look at it from a broader lens than just the officer that was actually on scene, agreed? Uh, an objective lens, yes. Right. And that includes... Um, all of the things that would be known to a reasonable police officer on the scene. Yes. All right. So you, you started, uh, you described your kind of four-prong approach to the analysis of uh, this particular case, uh, same approach you take in every review you've done, correct? Yes. And ultimately, um, ultimately, you focused the majority of, as, as I understood, the majority of your testimony, your direct testimony, on the third and fourth prongs of that analysis. Would you agree with that? Um, no, I, I would describe most of my testimony as being about the second and third prongs, the whether uh, Mr. Floyd presented any threat, and if so, how much, and uh, the risk factors to Mr. Floyd, the foreseeable effects of force. Okay. I apologize, the, you're right, the second and third. The fourth being uh, the generally accepted police practices, right? Yes. All right. Um, so let's start kind of from the beginning. One of the things that a reasonable police officer is entitled to do is rely on his or her training. Agreed? Um, in part, uh, an officer is not entitled under that professional standard to rely on training that's unreasonable. So it, the training has to be consistent with generally accepted police practices, but if the training is based upon generally accepted police practices, an officer is an, a reasonable officer is entitled to rely on his or her training. Agreed? Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure what you mean by in, entitled to. I'm analyzing whether an officer's actions are consistent with those generally accepted police practices. So if the training is consistent and the officer's behavior is consistent, then yes, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what you mean by entitled. When an officer approaches any use of force or any arrest, one of the things that a reasonable police officer takes into consideration is his or her training. And provided that that training is based upon generally accepted police practices, they can rely on their training in assessing the risk, the threat, all of the things that you've discussed. Agreed? I... I think, there, I think you're asking two different questions. So one question is, what does an officer rely on? And the second is, how does that factor into the analysis of an officer's actions? And those are very different questions. Okay. So let's answer them one by one. Sure. Starting with the first. How would you answer the first? Um, yes, officers generally rely on their training. At least I certainly hope that's the case. And that also factors into the, the analysis, correct? No. I'm not assessing an officer and whether they satisfied their training standards. I'm looking at whether they satisfied generally accepted police practices. So for my purposes, it's irrelevant whether an officer is doing what they were trained to do or what they were not trained to do because I'm looking at the professional norms that we expect. Fair enough. Okay. Now, 
when an officer, let's kind of look at those second and third prongs, step step by step a little bit again. Um, you testified that when an officer, a reasonable officer, is allowed to uh, take into consideration what information they would have it, have received before the use of force began. Agreed? Uh, yes. And in this particular case, you understand that Officer Chauvin was initially dispatched to this offense, correct? Yes. That that dispatch was subsequently canceled, correct? Yes. That a second set of officers responded or took over the call, so to speak, correct? Yes. And that Officer Chauvin, without the other officers on scene, was dispatched in an emergent state. Agreed? I explained the last part, I'm sorry. The officers on the scene did not request backup. A dispatcher made the determination that these officers needed assistance, correct? Um, I, well, offhand, I don't remember exactly the justification for the response, but I, I will accept that if that's your representation. And ultimately, so if, if an officer is canceled from a call, but then in an emergent situation, that's going to give a reasonable police officer a heightened a sense of awareness as they respond to that call. Agreed? Um, it depends on what information is provided to the officer and the reason they're responding, whether they're responding uh, code three, lights and sirens, or, or not. Um, I would say it, it can, but I'm not aware of any facts and circumstances that would apply in this case. So in this particular case, after officers King and Lane initially responded to the, to the call, dispatch um, uh, sent Officer Chauvin and Officer Tao code three to the scene. You don't recall that? Um, I, I would have to review the materials, but again, I'll, I will accept your representation of that. And ultimately it was then because they were taking somebody out of the car, correct? Implying that a reasonable officer would know that someone was being removed from the car for some reason, right? Yes, yes, and I recall that now, thank you. And an officer would have that, a reasonable officer, if we can take what they would know before the use of force into consideration, would know that fact. Yes, a reasonable officer would have known that at some point prior officers removed Mr. Floyd from the vehicle. And or one from of, a vehicle. One of, the, one of the factors that you discussed uh, in terms of the Graham v. Connor standard was the severity of the crime they were responding to, right? Yes. And ultimately, in terms of that, is it do reasonable police officers frequently encounter a situation that starts out as a mild offense, but uh, elevates to something more serious? Um, it's certainly possible. I don't think there's any reason to suggest that there, there were facts or circumstances of that, of that here. Well, if the officers who were initially on scene were struggling with an individual, resulting in dispatch stepping up two additional officers, code three, that would at least imply that there was something more serious than just a counterfeiting, correct? Uh, no, not necessarily. In, in this case, they were taking Mr. Floyd out of the vehicle for the counterfeiting. Resulting in a dispatcher stepping up the call to code three? Yes. And so, in, again, reasonable police officers, in addition to relying on their training, provided it meets professional standards, they also can rely on their experience, that's right. With the same caveats, yes. The, the, provided yes. that those prior experiences meet with professional standards. Right. Again, there's a difference between what an officer is relying on and whether their behavior meets the generally accepted police practices. And um, so one of those types of issues that a police officer may have experienced is uh, perhaps people don't like to be arrested, right? Uh, that is not uncommon. Right. And that people uh, who are being arrested sometimes feign illness or feign uh, some medical emergency in order to avoid being arrested. Agreed? Um, so officers would know that when they get someone medical attention and it turns out that a qualified medical provider can say there's nothing here. Or that uh, the person's, you know, behaviors change, right? They say, I, I have a, I'm having a heart attack, but then their behaviors are inconsistent with their words. They start doing jumping jacks or something. I've never seen that. Okay. So 
it's also again based on an officer's experience uh, it would be reasonable reasonable police officers may experience uh, one suspect in a car disrupting the police uh, intervention to assist other people in the car from avoiding apprehension have you seen that well, I'm, I'm sorry can you ask that again sure there would be again based on a reasonable police officer standards or reasonable police officers experience excuse me that one person who's being detained by police may obstruct that police uh, intervention to sort of protect or hide information about his or her passengers that the individual who is being detained may I resist or obstruct in order to prevent his or her friends from being searched or identified. Um, I, I suppose, at least in, in theory, that's possible. In this case, it's not clear that a reasonable officer in the defendant's position would have been aware that there were passengers. Well, did you, you, you said you spent 120 to 130 hours reviewing the body cameras, correct? Yeah, something like that. And you are aware where Officer Chauvin... And the rest of the materials, of course. And you're aware of where Officer Chauvin and Officer, uh, Lane, or excuse me, Officer Tao parked their vehicle, right? Yes. And you were aware, based on the materials, that an additional squad car uh, was there from the Minneapolis Park Police, correct? Yes. And that that officer, where they were parked, was essentially across the street from each other at the point that Officer Chauvin arrived. Agreed? Yes, there were. There were several cars on that street. I'm, what I'm saying is I, I'm not sure what a reasonable officer in Officer Chauvin's position would have known about events that occurred on scene prior to his arrival. He would know that other officers also responded, correct? Yes. And he, based on the dispatch, we know that Squad 830 from the Minneapolis Park Police arrived. Yes. Right? And when he arrived, he would be able to look across the street see that park police officer engaged with and doing whatever he's doing presumably um presumably if he yes if he looked across the street and saw that i i don't know what the officer was doing at the time or what an officer has to be attuned to his or her circumstances and surroundings agreed yes a reasonable police officer has to have a particular situational awareness right yeah i i Yes, I wouldn't say a particular one. I would say a general situational awareness, absolutely. Right. And so when Officer Chauvin arrived, if he parked directly across the street from another squad car and was aware based on dispatch that another squad car was in fact present, a reasonable officer would be generally aware of what all officers are doing, right? No. Uh, there. A reasonable officer who arrives without more specific information would not know whether that park police officer is talking to other witnesses about the counterfeiting call or other suspects or uh, passengers in the vehicle that Mr. Floyd was taken out of. Um, the, just seeing an officer interact with someone does not provide nearly enough context to understand, well, the, the context of that interaction. And so um, a reasonable officer would never take into consideration that that other officer even if it were another citizen, in terms of, again, the use of force, that other officer becomes unavailable to assist him based on what he or she is doing. Overruled. The officer would, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, can you ask that again, please? A reasonable police officer arrives on scene, right? He looks to his left and he sees a, an officer talking to two citizens looks to his right and he sees two officers struggling with a an individual or having a point of contention i believe you called it with an individual right at the point where he arrived i wouldn't call them struggling but yes right but he observes that there's obviously something that's a little bit more serious going on here right um I, yes at least they have one individual in custody there or in handcuffs yes right and the reasonable police officer would know that that other officer who's all the way across the street is not going to be as much of an assistance as he could potentially be as he's approaching the... I, yes, I th I, I, if I understand your question, uh, yes, as the, as the officer uh, arrives there, 
he is in a better position to offer immediate assistance to the officers interacting with the handcuffed individual than an officer who is talking to whomever. And a reasonable police officer will assess a person's words in the context of their actions. Agreed? I would say assess both their words and their actions, yes. And if someone is saying, I'm going to cooperate, I'm going to cooperate, I'm going to cooperate, that's what they're saying, their words are saying, but their actions are not cooperative, right? What is an officer to do in that situation? Just automatically believe that they're going to sometime cooperate? I think it depends on the situation. Um, no, I don't think an officer has to assume that this person will, uh, at some future point, uh, comply. And, in fact, an officer, again, is entitled to use force under these national standards greater than the force or greater than to, to overcome the suspect's actions. Agreed? Um, I, I, so I, I really don't like greater. Sometimes I hear that formulation, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, if someone is running away, what is force greater than running away? Uh, I would say that an officer has to use or, or can use force that is proportional and reasonable to address an individual's noncompliance or resistance, assuming, of course, that they have legal authority to do so. Right. And um, how it is frequently described in, in, in these materials that you've reviewed is that an officer can use more an, a, a, an amount of force that is greater than the greater than the force being used by the suspect in an effort to overcome that resistance, right? Are, are you asking me about the MPD training material specifically? Yes. Sidebar. Reasonable officer is um, should should be <clears throat> permitted to rely on information that they receive from his or her partner officers. Correct. Uh, yes. And do you recall in reviewing the video after or as this uh, struggle was ensuing, Officer Chauvin asking if he was under arrest? Uh, I do. I believe that's um, either prior to or as they're taking him out of the vehicle, out of the police vehicle. And other officers confirmed that he was under arrest at that time, correct? Uh, yes. Either Officer King or Officer Lane says, well, he's under arrest for forgery or, again, something very similar to that. And Mr. Floyd said, forgery for what, right? Uh, yeah, something like that. And so in the context of this particular case, does... A reasonable police officer decide if the person, if the suspect should be put into the squad car, or does the suspect decide whether they should be put into the squad car? Does the, does the, I mean, the officer determines that someone should be put into the squad, again, assuming that's, there's legal authority and the like. Right. And so, assuming that there's legal authority, the suspect does not get to dictate do I get to sit on the ground or do I have to sit in the squad car? Agreed? Uh, to to um, some extent, uh, yes, absolutely. There is a, um, uh, yes. Now, as we watch through the, the clips that you selected, the clips that we watched were not chronological necessarily in their order, were they? Um, going in sort of top row and bottom row, each was chronological, right? The first clip happened first, the last clip happened last, and then we went back to back to the beginning on the on the bottom part, right, on the foreseeable effects discussion. Reasonable officer um, would also 
uh, presumably have some knowledge about his partners, correct? Um, I, you might need to define some knowledge, but they would certainly know some stuff about the, the other officers that they were interacting with at close proximity, yes. A reasonable officer may know that these other officers who are on scene were on their second or third day as police officers. Objection, Your Honor. I, uh, it, it, it depends what the officer knows at that point. If, if those are facts and circumstances uh, that they are aware of, then a reasonable officer would be aware of it, yes. It's entirely possible for an officer to not to, to, to work with an officer in the field that they don't know, that they don't know how long they've been on the field. Now, you, you, you testified on direct examination that a reasonable officer would, when they approached and saw what was happening with Mr. Floyd, would know that, for example, that person had been searched, right? Um, I believe I said that it would certainly suggest that someone has been searched because you don't generally load someone into a vehicle before they had been searched. But you don't know if the search was, that reasonable officer would not necessarily know if the search was thorough, correct? Because they didn't see it. As you pointed out, officers are allowed to rely on the information that they get from other officers. Um, so while no, the officer is not in a position to gauge the how thorough the, the particular search was, there is an element of relying on other officers to do the job they've been trained for. And also in terms of you don't know whether the vehicle that the person and or his occupants was in was searched. A reasonable officer wouldn't necessarily know that at that point. Um, yes, that, that's correct. Without additional information, I don't know why a reasonable officer would know that a vehicle had or had not been searched or had or did not have occupants. But in fact, during the course of their interaction with Mr. Floyd, the officers did in fact discuss that Park was over, Park Police was over with the occupants of the vehicle and that the vehicle hadn't been searched yet, right? At, at which point? As they had Mr. Floyd restrained. Um, I, I can't tell you exactly when that happened. I remember some discussion to that effect. So officers, you would agree they go through this process of reassessment, the reasonable police officer does, right? I certainly hope so, yes. And officers will get information that may change how to deal with a particular situation, right? Um, that may, yes, as officers get additional information, they may update their response, escalating or de-escalating a use of force, for example, or talking to one person or not talking to one person that they had originally intended to speak to, sure. Now, in terms of, again, uh, the concept of situational awareness, an officer has to be around of his, uh, aware of his or her surroundings, agreed? Yes. And that would include things like uh, being on a busy street, right? Uh, yes, tactically, that's why you don't want to prone someone out on a street when you have the option of not doing so. In terms of those tactics, however, when Mr. Floyd, so I want to make sure that we're very clear here, in your position, from your review of the reasonableness of the use of force, it was unreasonable for the officers to put Mr. Floyd in the prone position at all, period, correct? Yes. At that point, he did not present a threat to the officers or their interests. He did not present a threat of uh, escape. Um, the officers used some amount of force to put him into the car, and I have no issue with that, but putting him in the prone position, especially on the street side of the car, uh, was unreasonable and excessive and contrary to generally accepted police practices. Um, reasonable minds can disagree, agreed? On this particular point, no. Okay, so Sergeant Steiger, who testified earlier, did you have an opportunity to review his testimony? I believe I, yes, I did. And so his assessment that it was reasonable for the officers to use the prone position in that time, at that time, you would disagree with him? I disagree. I think putting someone prone is unreasonable there. They are already handcuffed. The prone position is a transitory position used to restrain someone, handcuffs or, I suppose, uh, hobbles. In this case, officers took Mr. Floyd out of the car, put him on his knees, and then put him onto his side. And again, if they had stopped there, I would not have any quibble with their actions. Now, you testified that um, you described the 
prone position as transitory in nature? It is, yes, for 30 years or so, um, it's been generally accepted that that is a transitory position for the purposes of handcuffing or securing. Are there ever situations where officers would keep a person in the prone position longer than a transitory nature? Uh, there shouldn't be. We're, the, the Putting someone in the recovery position is literally a matter of rotating them 90 degrees onto their side. Officers can maintain as much or almost as much control over the individual. So while I suppose it's hypothetically possible, you know, if there's, I don't know, if gunfire breaks out and the officers are laying on someone to protect them with their body, maybe, but certainly not in this case. So in you, um, in your academic endeavors, you submitted a uh, opinion piece to the Washington Post. Do you recall that? Um, it, specific to this case? I've, I've have, I don't know, close to 30 op-eds at this point, so... Um, On May 29th of 2020, uh, an article appeared in the Washington Post, Post, authored by Seth Stoughton. That's you, right? Stoughton, but Stoughton, yes. Sorry. That's all right. Uh, Jeffrey Noble, that's the person you wrote the book with, right? Uh, yes, one of the two individuals. Yep. And Jeffrey Alpert, right? The other co-author of the book, yes. And so um, you, you wrote officers... Uh, officers might need to hold someone down in the prone position, but they should do so by putting their shin across the subject's upper back, not the neck. Do you Objection. disagree with that? Objection, Your Honor. You're saying? Overruled. I, I'm, are you asking me if I wrote that? Correct. I, I did, yes, referring to handcuffing. Uh, you, pressing on someone's neck risks damaging the cervical spine or breaking the hyoid bone, which can be fatal. Yes. And this was an opinion that you had formulated. Uh, your opinion piece was um, from four days after this incident? That, uh, yes, it was based on the review, uh, as I think I write in the, in the first or second paragraph of the opinion, the limited information that was available at that time. Right. And so at that point, it's fair to say that you had already formed the opinion based on that limited information that this was an unreasonable use of force. I think it's fair to say that I had formed the opinion that putting your knee across someone's neck, except in absolutely unbelievably rare circumstances, is generally an inappropriate use of force. This is an application of that generally accepted practice. Of course, as I reviewed um, all of the materials in this case, some of the opinions that I discussed at the bottom of that op-ed um, changed. And uh, this was not one of them. My, my, the, the additional information confirmed that the knee across the neck was inappropriate and that the prone restraint was inappropriate. Was the knee, in your opinion, across the neck throughout the entire 9 minutes and 29 seconds? Um, from my perspective, that's irrelevant. The knee should never be on the neck. Uh, it was certainly on the neck for uh, a majority of the time, even if it was moved off of the neck at certain points. Can you... Were you able to somehow determine the amount of pressure that was applied to Mr. Floyd's neck? Uh, not with any specificity, of course. There are um, some indicators that it was uh, a substantial amount of body weight, but I can't tell you exactly how many, pan uh, how many pounds. For example, the positioning of uh, the defendant's hips forward and over the left leg uh, the position of the defendant's shoulders as opposed to being back in sort of a squat position where you'd be resting on your feet. It was forward, indicating more weight on the, on the front towards the knee. And at times it was to the right, correct? Um, yeah, I think his hips, uh, or, or not his hips, excuse me, um, his right shoulder dipped uh, at some point. Um, I, I'm unable to say what effect that had on the weight on his left knee. So let's go back to um, the period of time when the officers were uh, attempting to put Mr. Floyd into the squad car. Um, reasonable police officers, again, in assessing their use of force, have to take into consideration uh, the strength of the individual, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Based on the experience that they may just have had, right? Um, how much, how strong someone is, is a reflection of their physical ability to resist in different ways. So that is certainly a factor in that threat analysis. And you already testified 
that they officers, uh, a reasonable police officer, can take into account size differences. Agreed? Um, size differences, uh, number of officers versus number of subjects, physical characteristics, uh, age, you know, a... A, a 10-year-old versus a 40-year-old may possess, present a different threat or risk analysis. Agreed? Uh, yes, they have different levels of physical ability, the threat that they present or the severity of the threat they present, even in doing the same actions, right? A, a, a healthy uh, college student and a, you know, a morbidly obese 90-year-old are not going to throw the same punch. Reasonable police officers do take into consideration uh, an expected, per, perhaps, EMS response, right? Um, in what context? Time. I, I, I'm sorry, in, in making which decision? I, I'm, yes, absolutely, reasonable police officer. I mean, when you call EMS, you expect EMS to respond. So certainly officers can act in reliance that EMS will respond when called. Right. And you understand that in this particular case, EMS was uh, called. At yes. The, at the, and that was contemporaneous to the point of the discussion about the use of the MRT, correct? Um, yes, I, I forget if that's when they were initially called or when they were upgraded, but it, yes, somewhere in there. And uh, again, a reasonable police officer in assessing the physical condition of the suspect, it would be reasonable for him to increase the response of EMS based on those observations, right? To, to uh, upgrade it, to ask for a lights and siren response, um, uh, yes, absolutely. What, what's not reasonable is holding non-responsive at that point. The answer is concluded at that point. A reasonable officer has to take into consideration um, his or her position relevant to other bystanders, right? I mean, meaning if I'm on my, if a police officer is on the knees and there is a crowd of people that are standing above them, that's a consideration that a reasonable police officer would make. Depending on the situation, that can affect a concept that's referred to as reactionary gap. Um, it's one of many such factors in, the, in this totality of the circumstances. Uh, so if there is some reason to believe that the crowd is threatening in some way, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, don't, I don't see that the case here. You've seen, uh, obviously, the, the footage, and at one point you observe Officer Chauvin uh, reach for his mace, correct? Yes. And shake it? Um, it? He takes it out of the holster, and I forget if he shakes it, but he definitely has it uh, deployed, yes. While saying to the crowd, don't come over here. Or something like that, yes. Reasonable police officer would know that they are being recorded, right, in this situation. Uh, I mean, the officers are wearing body cameras, so they should know that they are being recorded. And based upon your review, it appears that several people are standing right out in front of the officers holding what appear to be cell phones, correct? Oh, yes. And a reasonable police officer would be, who is situationally aware, would be aware that they are being recorded by the bystanders, right? I think that's a fair description, depending on the positioning of the officers. Uh, I'm not sure a reasonable officer in Officer Lane's position at Mr. Floyd's feet would have been aware, but uh, in the defendant's position, yes. And you're um, familiar with the concept that sometimes situations may look awful, but they may be lawful. With, with the concept? Um, I... I... I I suppose. I'm, I'm, can, you, can you explain what you mean there, please? Sure. Um, the police use of force is never a particularly attractive thing to, to watch or to witness. Uh, it's, it's not very pretty. Um, I, yeah, I think that's often the case. And just because it's not very pretty does not mean that it's not lawful use of force. Agreed? Um. Yes, sure. A, a, an officer can act reasonably and consistent with generally uh, general, excuse me, generally accepted police practices, uh, and it can look bad. Um, I, as I said, I don't think that's the case here. 
based on uh, the standards that you're aware of, um, prone control of a subject versus prone handcuffing? Are those two different uh, police practices? I, there is a significant difference between um, the positioning and the techniques of getting someone into handcuffs and then the uh, techniques and tactics of maintaining control of someone once they've been handcuffed. So if, if that's what you're asking, yes, the, the actions that an officer takes while handcuffing someone are not necessarily justified after the individual has been handcuffed. You're um, aware of the general concept of a use of force continuum, correct? Oh, yes. And that a use of force continuum uh, may include also what is called passive resistance. Agreed? Uh, the resistance portion of a use of force continuum can include what we can call passive resistance, absolutely. And passive resistance uh, does not exclude the possibility of the use of force. Uh, that's correct. So to go back from, uh, excuse me, to go back to my uh, previous example, if you have someone who is laying across a driveway, for example, um, protesting whatever happens on the other side of the driveway, the officer may use force to address that passive resistance to move that person, sure. Again, there has to be a threat that they're addressing with that passive resistance. So in terms of the, uh, at the point Mr. Floyd is placed prone on the ground, you observe, do you observe him continue to uh, kick his back legs? Are you, are you talking about as he, as he is brought down to the ground? Yep, initially. So there's one movement that's captured on, I believe, Officer King's and Officer Tao's body cameras uh, that looks to me as if Officer Lane is grabbing Mr. Floyd's leg and pulling it and straightening it and rotating it. Um, it's, I, that is my interpretation of what is happening there. And in fact, at that particular point, Officer Lane says something to the effect of Jesus Christ. Um, I don't remember if it's at that particular point. Uh, yes, it, it, it's not clear to me what he's referring to. He later um, makes some comments about what appear to be the smell of Mr. Floyd's feet, so I'm, I'm not sure what he's responding to when he says that. So you did not observe him attempt to control Mr. Floyd's legs at that particular point? Oh, no, he was definitely controlling Mr. Floyd's legs at that point. Uh, when, they bring, when the officers bring Mr. Floyd from his knees onto his side, uh, and then uh, from his side into that prone position, that grabbing and what I see as uh, pulling the leg is part of controlling the leg to flip his Mr. Floyd's hip and put him into that prone position, at which point uh, Officer Lane kneels over and then later holds Mr. Floyd's leg. So, yeah, he was definitely controlling his legs. Now, you would agree that a reasonable police officer has to assess multiple situations simultaneously, agree? Um, I, uh, no, I, a, a reasonable officer has to assess the situation that they're in. Um, certainly there are simultaneous inputs to that, but they're, they're in the situation that they should be focused on. So an, a reasonable officer who's in a situation where uh, they've just struggled with, three officers have just struggled with an individual, they're going to have some sense of exhaustion themselves, agreed? Um, it, depending on the length of the struggle and their efforts in the struggle, um, in, in this case it was relatively abbreviated. They would have to take into consideration the changing circumstances throughout the, the use of force, agreed? <laughs> Absolutely, they need to take into account changing circumstances. And you were shown some footage of the crowd uh, that was present uh, or that formed initially was a relatively small crowd. Um, yes, I, I, I mean, personally, I wouldn't describe it as a crowd. It was like 12 to 15 people, including folks over by the bus stop, so uh, some, a, a group of bystanders. People uh, across the street as well, right? Um, there was at least one person filming from across the street. Um, I don't remember seeing many, um, many bystanders on the other bystanders' cameras. Okay. Um, you agree that the camera only captures what the lens captures, right? 
Any individual camera? Yes, any individual camera will only capture what's on camera. And so, for example, that city pole camera, the milestone camera, you can see other individuals standing, more than one individual standing on the sidewalk across the street from where the officers were positioned. Agreed? Yes, at times, yes. And at various points you would agree that there were people uh, across the street to the southwest, southeast, excuse me. The, is that um, is that the, the Dragon Walk restaurant? Correct. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so so uh, yes, I believe the the uh, park police officer remained over in that way, in that direction. With you know to be two other passengers who were in the vehicle, at least, correct? Uh, I do. Yes. And also, I know that, and then, but they're standing there, so officers who are in the scene, a reasonable officer, is assessing not just what's in front of him in terms of the subject, but they're assessing, does this group of people present a threat or a risk to me? Uh, yeah, that's the basics of situational awareness, right? Knowing, not getting so focused on one particular thing that you lose awareness of the broader situation, the context in which you're asking, uh, acting, excuse me. Yep. And, and a, again, a reasonable officer, in terms of situational awareness, will try to be aware of what's behind him. Agreed? Yes. Or to his right or left. The, right? the, the surrounding situations, yes. And uh, reasonable officers um, can be distracted by those types of things. Um, so depending on what those other stimuli are, uh, yes, in this case, the first, again, more than three and a half minutes, there, there's no criticism from any bystanders. There's um, either silent bystanders or, in the case of Mr. McMillan, bystanders who are urging Mr. Floyd to comply with the officers. There was also radio traffic, agreed? Uh, some amount of radio traffic, yes. Confirming at one point at least that EMS was in route code three. Uh, yes, that was um, I think relatively late in the in the interaction, but yes, or confirming that they were at a particular location. It was at the particular time. We watched a couple of seconds as they were discussing uh, whether Mr. Floyd was using some sort of controlled substances. Would you agree with that? Yeah. So yes. I A reasonable officer has to take into consideration, as you testified, that the suspect may be under the influence of a controlled substance, right? Absolutely. And a reasonable officer, based on uh, nationally accepted standards, you testified has a duty of care in that particular situation, right? Um, in the situation where someone is potentially under the influence of controlled substances? Yes. So my testimony was an officer certainly has a duty to render medical aid as appropriate. Uh, just because someone might be on drugs doesn't necessarily create a medical situation, but it certainly affects their susceptibility to positional asphyxia, which officers should take into account. And a reasonable police officer, in terms of his or her belief that someone may be under the control, influence of a controlled substance, can take into account that that person may um, be stronger than they would normally? Uh, in terms of assessing the potential uh, physical ability of the individual, yes. That, of course, doesn't play into the opportunity or the apparent intention prong of threat. You would agree that reasonable police officers should have a higher level of awareness than non-law enforcement officers? I think the nature of the job um, makes that a really good idea, yes. When you take into account uh, the reasonableness of the use of force, you would agree that you're not experiencing, actually experiencing what the off officers felt at that point, right? That I individually am not experiencing it? No, I am, I am applying the reasonable officer on the scene framework. I am not, in fact, there. Right, and so you're not you don't have the same sensory responses to what the suspect or the officers are doing, right? You would not know, for example, is this person tensing his or her muscles because you're not feeling or touching that person. 
Yeah, so tactile feedback is one of the things that may not show up on video. Uh, it might, but it, it does not always show up on video. That's correct. <clears throat> When you do your um, use of force analysis, you're not doing it in a dangerous environment, I presume. Um, without any, making any jokes about my kids, no, I am, I'm not generally doing it in a, an extant dangerous situation. You have the luxury of slow motion enhancements, looking at things from multiple perspectives. Agreed? Overall. So for the portion of the, in, uh, of the inquiry where I'm, I, excuse me, for the portion of the inquiry where I'm identifying what the underlying facts were, uh, yes, I can slow video down, I can freeze frame it. Um, as I am taking those facts and circumstances and identifying what a reasonable officer would have perceived in that situation, I'm of course aware that a reasonable officer on the scene does not have those capabilities. Now, you also described repeatedly um, seeing what you believed to be Mr. Chauvin's knee on the neck of Mr. Floyd, and you described that as deadly force. Agreed? Yes. And you're trained in prone handcuffing and prone control yourself, correct? I, uh, yes, I suppose. And in terms of uh, an officer's training to use prone control, as you describe in the Washington Post article, the knee should be in the back between the trapezius muscles. Agreed? Uh, trapezius, shoulder blade, tricep area, lat, uh, the big muscle under here. Um, yes. And that would not be considered the use of deadly force. Agreed? Uh, if, if, again, kept uh, transitory so that we aren't turning that into a prolonged prone restraint, uh, then no, that would not be considered deadly force. Reasonable police officer, based on uh, national training standards, um, would take into consideration the prospect that the person who fights with them and then appears to be compliant could potentially become a threat again. So what you're describing is risk, right? The idea that they could potentially become a threat, that, that's the very definition of risk. Um, Yes, and officers can do a range of things to mitigate risk and to prevent it from becoming for, uh, to, for, to prevent it from becoming a threat. They can't use force to address risk. But they can use some degree of force to deal with passive resistance. Um, yes, they can use some degree of force to address passive situation where if someone is passively resisting while officers are just trying to maintain control over them, then you just hold them on their side. And in terms of um, a person who's handcuffed, it's not a reasonable officer would never expect that person to get up and run away or become a threat again? Uh, that's not my testimony. My testimony is there may be some risk of that, but officers can generally maintain control over a handcuffed individual in the side recovery position, which is what it's designed for. You also watched one of the clips um, where one of the officers checked for a pulse, correct? Yes. And you heard Officer Chauvin say, huh? Uh, yes. And then the response was, I'm just looking for a pulse? I, uh, it was something like that. I said I was checking for a pulse or said I was looking for a pulse or something like that. At the point that the officer references, we didn't watch the entirety of it during this clip, but at the point the officer references that he was passing out, you also hear officers say, but he's still breathing. Yes. At that point, he was still breathing. Or at least the officers are narrating that he was still breathing at that point. I have no further questions, Your Honor. Redirect. <laughs> and I'd like you to provide some further explanation regarding using uh, more force than the subject presents. And I 
believe you were asked if the officer was allowed to use sort of a level up of force. Uh, is that an oversimplification of the reasonableness standard? Yes, it is, and it, it's an oversimplification that really doesn't make a, a lot of sense, right? Um, like I said, what does it mean to use a level up from passive resistance or someone running away? You, you know, running faster doesn't count. Um, so I, I, I don't find that to be a helpful formulation of explaining uh, proportionality and reasonableness. And you also testified as to the need for officers to reassess the situation on cross-examination, is that right? Yes, absolutely. Be situationally aware of changes in circumstances, is that right? Yes, absolutely. And that you know some officer may need to be aware um, who's behind them across the street at some point, is that right? Uh, sure, officers should should maintain that level of situational awareness. But should a reasonable officer maintain a level of situation awareness as to what's going on right in front of them? Absolutely, that's still the primary focus. Situational awareness is um, not exclusively focusing on what you're dealing with right in front of you, but it's also not ignoring what you're dealing with and that's right in front of you. And with respect to tactile response, that's feeling the response of someone uh, you're touching, is that right? That's correct. So someone who's, um, you know, you, you can't just tell looking whether I'm pushing on my own hand. Um, so, yes, that's correct. Would a reasonable officer in the place of the defendant then have the situational awareness to understand that he's kneeling on top of a limp person who is not responsive? Um, I would certainly have hoped so, yes. A reasonable officer would absolutely be aware of that. And in terms of situational awareness and relying on information provided from partner officers, would a reasonable officer in the defendant's situation have paid attention when the comment that they couldn't find a pulse was made? Uh, yes, absolutely. That's an incredibly important, uh, important piece of information for uh, an officer there, as is um, the, 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 the moving uh, of, the, of the individual. Um, one of the things that we know about positional asphyxia is this concept of vicious cycle, which is that as someone starts to have difficulty breathing, they move or, um, or, or resist, if you like, for breath. They're fighting to breathe, not fighting officers. Um, and again, this goes back almost 30 years as generally accepted uh, with regard to positional asphyxia and the, the, the way officers should address it. In terms of rendering medical aid and the decision of an officer to believe if someone is stating something like, for example, I can't breathe, shouldn't the officer, using situational awareness, determine um, the uh, credibility of that statement based on all the facts and circumstances presented at the time? Uh, yes, and again, the officer has a very limited ability to engage in credibility determinations there. Um, so if someone is expressing difficulty breathing, you roll them onto their side so it's easier for them to breathe. That is what the side recovery position was intended for. One hypothetical situation is that a person standing in the distance from me to you, speaking in the tone that I'm speaking, expressing to you that I can't breathe, you might have reason to doubt that based on all of the facts and circumstances, correct? Um, sure. Under our, uh, uh, yes, under under our interactions, um, there there's no reason to believe that that's the case. There's no uh, behavioral indications. We're continuing to have the same conversation. As the officer, I would still want to take that seriously and potentially summon medical aid, uh, but we're not in the position of me, you know, knocking you down and doing CPR or anything. But if you're kneeling on top of me and I'm telling you that you can't breathe, that might be a different situation, and your situational awareness might prompt you to believe that, in fact, what I'm saying is what I'm actually experiencing. What would the situation be? Well, never mind. I have no further questions. Any further recross? Thank you, sir. You are excused. Thank you. Of the jury, uh, we will be taking our adjournment for the day, but I wanted to give you an idea of a little bit of time frame now that we're getting closer to the end. We expect that we'll be moving to the defense case tomorrow, and accordingly, we expect that we'll finish all the evidence in this case uh, by the end of the week. 
possibly with even Friday off. Uh, my preference is not to make the attorneys close on Friday because when they close, this case will be submitted to you for deliberation, which means at that time, as we warned you long ago in jury selection, you'll be sequestered. Uh, if I were to have closing arguments on Friday, that would mean you'd be sequestered and your weekend, uh, and I don't know if you have any plans. I'm not going to do that. Um, my preference is to give the attorneys more time to prepare their closing arguments uh, and have the closing arguments we predict on Monday. At that point, you will be sequestered. So uh, you'll get some more information from the sheriff's deputies uh, regarding that, but expect that you will, uh, when you report for duty on Monday, that it will be followed by sequestration. So pack a bag. Uh, but the deputies will give you a little more information. Just wanted to kind of give you that so you can plan your own lives around that. And we will see you tomorrow about 9.15. Thank you. We're in recess.